this is Maria Lubman in our Pornos Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. September 13 was Russia's annual election day. Elections were held in many Russian regions. 18 regions had gubernatorial elections. In many regions, people voted for their local legislatures. In a number of cities, residents elected their municipal assemblies. Turnout is generally low at local elections in Russia. The elections themselves are hardly fair. Pro-Kremlin candidates commonly win most races, and such votes, for very rare exceptions, remain non-events, attracting little, if any, attention outside their regions and often even inside them. But elections are always an important moment for sociologists and political analysts, and this year's races were arguably of special interest. There are several reasons for that. One is the political backdrop that includes nationwide rebellion against President Lukashenko in Belarus, Russia's closest neighbor. Another element of the political backdrop is the ongoing protest over the arrest of local governor in Khabarovskrai in the Russian Far East. There were no elections in Khabarovsk this year, but those protest rallies may have influenced people's mood elsewhere. The September election day was held soon after the national vote for the constitutional amendments, including one that enables Putin to stay in power for much longer, if not for life. That vote was conducted with egregious violations of voting rules and procedures, which left many in Russia unhappy. Two more factors have to be considered. The COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing economic decline, both affecting public mood. Also, next year, Russia will hold national Duma election, so this year's races might give an idea of the voters' attitude toward their leadership. Finally, in late August, Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent opposition figure, was poisoned, just as he was organizing vote-smart municipal campaigns in a few cities. Did any of these or other factors play out in the September 13 election? We will talk about it with Graham Robertson, professor of political science at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hello, Graham. Hi there. Nice to be here. And Konstantin Gaz, a sociologist lecturer at Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. Hello, Konstantin. Hello, Maria. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. So any election includes two major elements the actual voters and their sentiments, and those who seek to gain people's support by whatever means. So let us begin with the people. Graham, you wrote in a recent piece that Putin's regime relies on formidable apparatus of authoritarian control, but it also, as you wrote, claims true popular legitimacy buoyed by high level of mass support. What do your recent surveys tell you about mass support of Putin's regime? And which factors that I listed, and maybe some others, did you expect to play out in September 13 elections based on your surveys? So thank you, Jan. So this has been, uh, I think, a feature of the Putin regime from the very beginning, that on the one hand, there's, you know, mass uh, repression and a huge apparatus of of media control and, and other things behind the regime. But there's also been a really important electoral element. A lot of Putin's authority and power comes from the fact that he can claim and, and deliver on the promise to win elections. And he's also enjoyed at various different times mass support. And we, we know that this has gone up and down at different periods. And so we came into this election at a time in which Putin's support was starting to, to weaken. We had the very famous 
post-Crimea bounce and which couldn't became very popular and not only just popular but 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 really people seem to be much more engaged in politics and much more enthusiastic and then this started to decline around 2018 with the pension reforms and, and, and the continued sluggishness of the economy. Into this context came COVID, and I think that's been a real game changer and a, a really major influence on Putin's popularity. And so that's why we conducted surveys, me and, and some colleagues, in the, this, this past summer. And we found that the impact of COVID was really pretty significant on the Putin regime. We found that people who had personally been experienced with, you had personal experience of COVID or family members, their support for, 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 for President Putin and the, and the regime had gone down. We found that people blamed him for poor public handling of COVID. It seemed that people's personal experience, you know, they, they could see past the official numbers of deaths from COVID, which were pretty low. When we've seen recently the, you know, the, the excess deaths data coming out, which suggests that in reality, deaths from COVID in, in Russia are probably much higher. And people seem to pick up on this from their personal experience. And then we also see that the economic consequences of COVID have, have really kicked in, and, and that's been a, a very significant part in, in weakening support for, for President Putin. We also found in our surveys more evidence of the electoral legitimacy connection. Many of our respondents, we did this survey just around the time of the plebiscite or the public consultation, whatever you want to call it, around the changes in the constitution. And we found that many people in our survey saw this as an, as an overreach. They saw this as an attempt to eliminate the electoral element in, in, in Russian politics. And those, for those uh, for whom that mattered, and there were significant numbers of them, this was a major factor in them defecting or, or, or taking a more negative view of the, of the regime. So it's a combination of economics, COVID, and then political overreach through the, through the constitutional changes. Right. But what were your expectations? I mean, September 13, not a national election, but many races in many different regions. You had the factors that were exposed in your surveys. What did you expect? Did you expect any kind of discontent that would reveal itself in the vote? So this, this is what's really, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, right? This is not a, this is not a national referendum. This is not a presidential election. It's a bunch of different kinds of elections for different offices a sort of fairly random scattering of places. There's also the fact that these are primarily local elections where the turnout is low. My expectation going in was that, we, that I thought that some of these factors might actually be uh, more important in the context of a low turnout election. So what, what some of the, the research seems to suggest is that the, the opposition candidates do better in low turnout elections, not just because of fraud, but also because of, you know, they're more likely to be motivated to actually show up. So there, there was, there was, I think, some expectation in some places that we might see these factors express themselves in the in the elections. Although, like you see, this is very far from a national plebiscite of any kind. Right. Question: Would you say this election was more of a challenge to the Kremlin handlers than local and regional elections of previous years? I would point out something that also features in Graham's article that some of the communist candidates were removed from the race by the Kremlin, even though communists, of course, are tame, systemic, loyal opposition, however you describe it. So was it more of a challenge to the Kremlin this time than regional local elections in previous years? If, if you're talking about those officials in Kremlin who are responsible for political politics, I mean, election process, uh, parties and so on, they were looking for sort of a recipe of ideal regional elections. And finally, this September, they found it. 
they realized that the combination of number of techniques from uh, total depolitization of uh, federal agenda, those elections was they, they, they regional campaigns weren't on the radar of state controlled media. All, uh, all techniques in relation to lowering the turnout and maximizing the weight of what we call voting by budget network or more classical mobilized voters. And of course, this three days voting thing that has been called in Russian internet voting on a stump. The stump vote itself when you can organize the voting process everywhere you want in places of public gathering and you can hold the election booths there for three days. So by combining these three major techniques, they achieved pretty fascinating results. All pro-Kremlin or Kremlin governors were elected and uh, some of them got more votes than uh, Putin himself in 2018. So they were, in terms of uh, technologies, they were pretty successful, yes. Right. So there is apparently every reason for the Kremlin to be happy, as you say. And indeed, this new trick, I think, first tried during the vote on the constitutional amendments, voting on the stump. Of course, in America, candidates give stump speeches. In Russia, some voters were casting their ballots on actually actual tree stumps so yeah, these politicians, techniques... politicians don't give uh, speeches on stump only only in uh, pre-mediated audiences in uh, good-looking halls <laughs> so right. it's vice it's vice versa still what do you make of the fact that some of the communist candidates and i will repeat a communist of course in russia are referred to as tame opposition or loyal opposition systemic opposition why were they barred from the race? What was it that the Kremlin was concerned about? There are two types of actors who are involved in election process. There's a Kremlin officials and they basically, they treat communists as not as friends, but at least as political partners. But there are some local officials and they have very different kind of stakes there. For example, there are a limited number of offices in original legislation assemblies. And if you want to promote uh, your candidates or give kind of a, a electoral uh, prize to people who loyal for, for example, for governor, you're supposed to oppress. Uh, you're supposed to oppress communists first of all because they are next big party after the United Russia. So they are not enemy for Kremlin, but of course the local offices, communist local offices, are enemy for local governor governors being at the same moment part of a local elite. So if I could add something on that, I think you know, the, the, the characterization of the communists as being you know, a, a tame in-house opposition is, is you know, at the national level is completely fair, but I think at the local level, and this is what Konstantin was alluding to, there's, there's, there's much more variation and there's spoils to be divided up in the local communities. And, and, and so in some places they're, they're docile, in some places they're pretty competitive. In some places there are independents who run under the communist label just to have a, just to have a label. And so it's a much more interesting of course, because uh, the level communist party it's a kind of a franchise. It, it, yeah. it, it's not. It's not. It's not the fixed ideology or fixed position in political field. When, when the franchise is active and has some agenda uh, with governor, of course he will be in a, in a real opposition. I mean, he will protect. He will try. He will fight for civil rights. He will fight against illegal construction and so on and so on. The, the main idea, the main idea of Kremlin is not turn United Russia into local franchise. Uh, so this this is this is sort of a contradiction they're dealing with. 
Костя, Navalny's vote smart campaign seemed to work, at least in Tomsk and Novosibirsk. How do you interpret the opposition's success? At the same time, uh, you have just said that the Kremlin should be happy that the Kremlin figured out an ideal tactics, ideal tricks to handle these local elections. Still, Navalny's people were successful and were elected to local municipal assemblies. Was it that the Kremlin was unable or unwilling to prevent this success? I think unwilling, because you see big cities are a problem. It's a huge problem for Kremlin. In terms of they demonstrate uh, higher turnout than rural regions, uh, more educated population, more varieties in local politics, more access to different kind of information. So big cities are a problem, especially Novosibirsk. Novosibirsk is intellectual capital of Siberia and one of the intellectual capitals of Russia. Kremlin was unwilling to prevent moderate success of Vote Smart because they don't know what to do with it. For example, in Moscow, we have like a year, it's a year remains before the elections to the Moscow City Duma, but Moscow's mayor's office already assembled a special team of political strategists, and the main goal is to prevent a Vote Smart campaign in Moscow in 2021. So Kremlin, we may say that Kremlin delegates the fight against Vote Smart to, to local authorities. I see one of those who were part of Vote Smart, uh, Navalny's team, and actually won, won a seat in the local uh, municipal assembly, said that in her city there is usually no fraud. That usually she said, well, what in Russia is referred to as administrative resource, that is, uh, actual officials using their authority to gain the desired result. While the administrative resource is used, fraud, rigging, is not. How is this possible? Or why is that? Well, I think it depends. I mean, we have a huge variety of local political cultures in Russia, different, different style of governing, different settings of activists. And you see, we, that's true, uh, as Graham said, about the repression apparatus, uh, but it's true in general, as well as the communists are different, local, uh, local public officials very different. Some of them are ready to take responsibility for electoral fraud because they know that the governor can cover them and all, all what they've done would be covered up. But in some regions, uh, you see there's, uh, the, 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 there, are, there are cities in, in Russia, for example, where regular citizens can write a message in Messenger and mayor will read it instantly. Number number of them, they're not, they're not, uh, it's not big ones, but, but there are. So uh, I would say that it mostly depends on local political culture. There are regions, there are regions, for example, like huge agrarian, huge agrarian regions on the south, like Rostov region, they are ruled by Iron Hand, yes. But, for example, in Central Russia or in, on somewhere in Siberia, there are a number of more, uh, with more regions with much more variety in political life. If, right. if I may join in here, there's, yes. there's actually some, I totally agree with, with, with what Konstantin said about the variety. And there's some pretty good research by, by Cole Harvey, which, which shows that you, you, you're much more likely to get outright falsification and then just you know essentially making up numbers in elections in regions where there's no significant opposition and no and no real competition yes. where the opposition is active the risk of getting caught the risk of evidence getting out there that's you know on video and, and, and elsewhere where there's where there's election observers that's actually really hard to do and so it's much more important to resort to the kind of hard more murky techniques that Kosia was talking about about voting on the stump and and, and voting at home and 
meal, those kinds of not so much falsifications, but voter mobilization tactics. And those are much more prevalent in somewhere like Novosibirsk, where, where, where it's more competitive. Graham, so the Kremlin seems to have once again managed to gain the results that it desired. However, of course, a more serious challenge lies ahead. And of course, I'm talking about Duma election next year. Based on your survey, and of course, in this case, your survey should provide more information or food for thought. What trends in public perceptions that you identified in your survey the Kremlin should be most concerned about? Yeah, I, I agree that the, the, the Duma elections in principle ought to be much more clearly a sort of referendum on the on the ruling system. And I think you know, what comes out of the surveys is something that we've We've known for a very long time about what matters in, in Russian public opinion. That's that uh, the economy is really, really going to be important. And the overall economy is not going to get better. I think we, we know that. So the, I would expect, if I were in the Kremlin, I'd be looking for different ways to, to mobilize my base, to, to satisfy you know, the, the core voters that I, that I really want to turn out, the, the budget sector workers, pensioners, those kinds of, of, of people in order to try and kind of soften the economic blow that, that, that's coming forward. I, I would be very concerned about, you know, facing up to the economic consequences of COVID until after, after the, the elections. The real strategy here is going to be mobilizing the base and trying to rely on a combination of, of you know, a solid third of the electorate, maybe a little bit more, plus the kinds of tactics and, and, and tricks that the constant been talking about through the, the elections. In terms of broader public opinion, you know, something you know, might turn up, things, things happen all the time. But, but right now, the perspective is not that rosy, I wouldn't think. Not that rosy. Uh, so, Konstantin, do you uh, agree with this assessment? And by the way, some analysts in Russia are saying these days that an early uh, Duma election is not ruled out. Do you share such expectations? I, I think that everything on the table, because as Graham said, the economic situation is not getting better. It's getting worse. We lived through some because of uh, huge portions of helicopter money. By some accounts, it was at least half a trillion rubles uh, spent on, on so-called uh, child payments, to 20,000 rubles per each child. So it, 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 gets them, it gets them through the summer, but they won't be able to, they won't be able to avoid budget cuts. And budget, budget spendings are the last resort of the, of the shadow of economic growth that we that have here. We already know that it will be number of budget cuts next year and number of budget cuts that will somehow affect the what Graham called the base, the, the core of Putin's electoral base for budgetniks, doctors, teachers, and so on and so forth. So everything is on the table. And as far as I understand, Kremlin doesn't have a playbook for Duma elections. They don't know. I mean, whether they're going to promote new parties like Power Party or the People Party, which is like sort of populist, liberal, pro-Kremlin, but uh, pro-business at the same moment, uh, kind of kind of simulacrum. So uh, I think that they don't know. The, there are a number of speculations in Moscow now that the earlier Duma elections would be better for Kremlin because the consequences of COVID and consequences of unavoidable next wave of sanctions 
can can be pretty harsh if if elections will happen next autumn. By the way, Ella Panfilov, chief of electoral commission, already said that maybe next vote would be in April, which mm-hmm. which which automatically means that next Duma election will happen next April, not next September. I think they are deep in political planning right now. And they're trying to understand what's better for them to reboot the political cycle from the scratch using new constitution, some new corruption cases, or is it better to have it as it goes, to have it on a regular basis? I don't think that they have decision right now. So we are quite likely to see, um, as likely to see uh, the same tricks that they use this time, a several day long vote and uh, voting on stumps. <laughs> Uh, and some such, as well as new tricks, right? Is this what you're telling? On the one hand, we can have the number of new political parties. They will generate huge white noise. They will dissolve the real political agenda for these elections. But of course, three days voting is something that it's so, it's this lucrative little scam, this is very lucrative for Kremlin. This is very good. And I don't think that they can fight the temptation to vote three days on a Duma election. It's too, it's too good for them. Uh, Kostya, do you imply that the Kremlin plays it ad hoc each time, adjusting with each election cycle to the actual problems as they arise? In your interview to Medusa, you said that the Kremlin handlers don't deal with popular discontent. They are looking at performance indicators. What do you mean by that? For example, they're looking at presidential rating of Vladimir Putin, and they uh, interpret it not not as a, a political indicator, but the indicator of general well-being. For example, if uh, presidential rating in a region is going down, it means that a governor is doing something wrong in, in economics. They don't operate on a, on a presumption that there are some real political problems that they face. They operate on the presumption that they're dealing with a number of different political settings in different regions. And if they can have deals with all possible actors, they can manage the elections in general. And yes, of course, they don't have the general political strategy. 20 years of Putin in power teach us that he's not a strategist at all. He, he's always dealing with things ad hoc. He's always asking what, what problems do we have now, not what, what we want to achieve. We already see it. For example, government, federal government today finally sent to Duma a law on increasing the taxes on so-called rich people. So they're starting sort of a populist populist wave as they always do. But who knows what their sociology will show them, I don't know, this December. We don't know that. And they, once again, they don't deal with real people. They, they deal with columns of digits. Graham, in your surveys, you do deal with real people. Do you agree that people are not interested in issues? I mean, the Kremlin has its own technology and it so far it's worked reasonably well for them. 20 years uh, of Putin in power, uh, I think, is an indication that the Kremlin knows what it's doing. But when you talk to actual people, what are the issues of concern? And for instance, the measure that Costa just mentioned, a raise taxes on the wealthy, do you think this is something that people might actually like, that actually might change their perceptions, at least of some of them? Sure. So I, I, I smiled when Kostya said that Putin's not a not a, a great strategist, but he's he's an amazing tactician. That's what we've learned over the years, and and the ability to to adapt and the ability to to come up with new technologies and, and new 
strategies and new policies is really creative, and I think they are very well tapped into the kinds of issues that, that do motivate their, their core of supporters. And if you look at, for example, exactly redistribution of, of income, we've been looking at this for a number of years now. This is, this is a, a subject on which Russians are divided. They're not all in favor of a redistributive state by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the kinds of people who vote for United Russia, the kind of people who are, who are loyal supporters of President Putin, this is, this is an issue that's, that's of, of high importance to them. It's certainly a button that would be worth uh, thinking about pushing. You know, people care about the same things that they care about in, in everywhere. They care about the economy. They care about uh, public safety. They care about their social services. Whether they care enough about those things to actually, you know, turn discontent with the general situation and to mobilize discontent, either on the streets or in elections, that's a whole other, other matter. What about jobs? According to Levader Center surveys, unemployment has become a much higher concern for obvious reasons in Russia. Did you see that? Did you uh, observe that in your surveys that people are concerned about losing their jobs? So people are concerned about losing their jobs. People are concerned. There, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of anxiety out there about the, the economic future. People are very negative on the economic future in general. So jobs, but also their wages and the broader kind of family economic situation. These things all hang together pretty tightly usually. I think also the point about thinking about Putin's rating as being a general indicator of, of the mood, there is a pretty close relationship usually between people's understanding of, you know, is the country going in the right direction or is the country going in the wrong direction? That tracks the rising and falling patterns in, 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 in popularity of President Putin too as well. So that, 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 that to me is pretty, is an interesting point. Question, do you think the Kremlin is seriously concerned about Navalny's vote smart campaign? Navalny seems to be recovering. There's a chance that he's coming back to Russia. He's got his loyal friends and colleagues working on this vote smart campaign. They will, of course, try to launch similar campaigns in time for the Duma election. Do you think that the Kremlin regards this as a serious risk? It's hard to assess now. I see that number of uh, local, number of local authorities, as Moscow City Mayor's office, they they are deeply concerned with Vote Smart. Speaking about Kremlin, you see the way how Vote Smart organized somehow prevents Kremlin from huge risk because it's a technology of redistribution of voices from United Russia to opposition parties, but, but the parties which are part of systemic opposition, as everybody called it. For example, you can redistribute some huge share votes from United Russia to communists or from United Russia to just Russia. It's a risk, it's unpleasant situation for Kremlin, but it's not the same uh, with, for example, giving Navalny and his followers the right to form their political party and participate in elections with a participating ticket with, with a party project. It's not the same risk. So. Yes, they are concerned, but we still have uh, half of Duma elected by party lists and half of Duma elected by single-mandated districts. So if we're speaking about single-mandated districts, it's a, it's a problem of governor. It's not a problem of Kremlin. Speaking about party lists, yes, they're concerned, but it's not for, for, for now, it's not a huge risk. In the end, they can get as much votes as they get in 2011, for example, and said, okay, blame it on the COVID. Blame, blamed it or blamed it on the sanctions and so on and so forth. Well, it is always um, very ungratifying to try and forecast in Russia, and still we have to do it. Can you please uh, give very brief answers, both of you? Do you think the Kremlin will handle the Duma election in a way that would 
leave it reasonably happy? Or do you think there is indeed a serious challenge lying ahead? Graham? Yeah, no, no, no one leapt forward to answer that one. I know, I know, it's always hard. <laughs> my, I mean, my, my sense is, is that, you know, the, the bar is actually pretty low. The, the, the translation from popular feeling into through the electoral institutions into results is a machine that, that makes it the bar pretty low for the Kremlin. But the, the combination of the fact that smart voting doesn't really work on the national lists because, you know, who are the, you have to have a parties that are registered. There's not a kind of, you know, obvious way of the, the, the logic applies. So the, the Kremlin doesn't need to do great on that, but it can do well enough. And the communists that are elected on the national list are very much that kind of tame communists that, that, that'll go along. Remember in, in 2011, it was the communists who were cheated out of seats uh, primarily in the, in the electoral fraud that took place that year. And it was Yuganov who was condemning the protesters. So that's, they've got a pretty safe, system there and it's set up on the national list and then on the local list to win these elections you need 30 percent and that's you know going to be relatively easy to to get in, in in most places i would have thought so you know barring some unexpected events you know the, the challenge for the kremlin is just not that severe i think overall in, in those elections so not rosy but not that severe a uh, question yeah. do you agree with that absolutely agree we cannot imagine the situation right now where Kremlin is going to lose, I mean, dramatically lose Duma elections. We just can't imagine it, given the technological circumstances, given the laws that had been that had been reshaping for last 20 years to satisfy Kremlin needs. So uh, the, the, even the terms of laws are somehow unimaginable. I mean, the, the, the great the tragic loss. So now it's just a question of they wish. Do they need a huge win? And if they do, it's better for them to have earlier Duma elections. Or are they okay with the situation that Graham just described? That not, not rosy, not so bad, just okay. Okay, I think uh, the Kremlin handlers should actually be satisfied to hear your assessments. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.